Welcome to Beyond the Balance Sheet, the podcast that helps advisors, clinical professionals, and affluent families understand the complexities of issues related to our mental, physical, and emotional well-being. Our co-hosts, Arden O'Connor and Diana Clark, will interview a series of guests on a range of topics, providing informative content and practical tools for professionals and families to consider. Here are your hosts, Arden and Diana. Hi, and welcome to an episode of Beyond the Balance Sheet. Arden O'Connor, my co-host, and I are thrilled to talk with Andrew Kasperson about his personal story of falling down and a story of getting back up. We really appreciate his willingness to talk to us. One of the best parts about doing this podcast and about doing this work is that we get to hear these personal stories and have insight into other lives that we wouldn't ordinarily know about. So Andrew lives and works in New York City. He has done a stint in federal prison in 2016 for defrauding those who trusted him. But he is today interested in sharing his experience of recovery so that not only does he provide a cautionary tale for those who might be close to the edge, but also to show that help and healing are possible. Welcome, Andrew. Thank you, Diana. So our first question is, like everybody else in our audience, tell us the story. Just in your own words, <laughs> tell us the story. So for those of your listeners who have spent some time in 12-step meetings, I'll try to condense the typical long-form qualification uh, statement to a two to three minute summary. And I guess if I had to provide a 10 second summary, you know, when I started recovery, my first month in April, 2016, a friend of mine in AA gave me a book called The Return of the Prodigal Son. And it's something that I immediately related to um, yeah. about, a, about a young son who was given everything that he could possibly ask for and still squandered it away. And that's, you know, basically my story on steroids. So I was, I was raised in a very loving household on an idyllic farm in Northern New Jersey. Um, you know, two wonderful parents, three supportive brothers, great extended family and community. And I just couldn't have asked for a better environment to grow up in. Um, I was also offered every educational, educational opportunity I could ever dream for, whether it was, you know, Montessori preschool all the way to an Ivy League law school and everything in between. Uh, but much more than that, it was a, it was a loving and stimulating uh, environment. You know, my family emphasized traditional values of, you know, work ethic and treating each other with respect and many of those that I wish to emulate today. And despite all of that, um, you know, I went down a different path. And uh, there are a lot of reasons. Um, I would say that it was made a little easier by my drinking and gambling. And... Um, I still remember like it was yesterday. I was I was 16. I was uh, walking into Foxwood Casino. It just opened, and I can still hear the buzz of the slot machines and the smell that terrible but somehow uh, alluring um, sense of uh, of the casino and sitting down at the blackjack table and feeling the green felt and hearing the cards as they were dealt and looking in excitement as they were turned over. You know, I was mesmerized and I was truly all in at that moment. I may have not known it, but I was. 
it didn't help that I won that day. It made it easier to come back. Um, but I suspect I would have returned regardless. And from that point forward, through my own decisions, I decided to drink and gamble more and more as the years progressed. My gambling evolved from casinos to sports betting. You know, in the late 90s, the online sports betting world was kind of created um, a little different and harder than it is today. So I only shudder to think of what it would be like, you know, growing up in today's environment. But back then, you know, you would go to the Western Union, you'd wire money to some shady Antiguan uh, casino, and then you'd place your bets. And I did that. And then I involved it to, you know, market speculation first, just buying stocks on margin before their earnings, and then, you know, stock options and was able to create limitless bets, no longer constrained by table limits. Um, and for a guy like me that wanted to put all of his cash on a single coin toss bet, it was a perfect opportunity. And I just was all in. And that went on for a long time, uh, a long time. Um, and eventually I crossed that criminal line, you know, a little less than a decade ago, I started taking money from, uh, from those who trusted me the most. Um, I just wasn't willing to wait until that next liquidity event, whether it was a work bonus or a trust distribution. I just wasn't willing to wait. And I took other people's money and put it alongside my own and, um, you know, I gambled it all away. You know, I'm reminded of um, Einstein's definition of insanity is doing the same thing over and over again, expecting a different result. And I was exhibit A. You know, I even kept a spreadsheet showing that if I did these coin toss like bets, I was destined to lose and bankrupt myself every time. And still I continued. And you don't need to put a spreadsheet together to know that eventually you're gonna lose a coin toss bet, you know, unless you're Rosencrantz and Hamlet. So it was uh it was a path, you know, a very self-destructive path. And um I drank more and more. I, I, I think of it as kind of putting the mute button on my conscience at the time, you know, just drinking away the guilt and knowing that it'd be easier to do these things. So it was, it was a combination of kind of greasing the wheels of criminal thinking, um, but also being lured by drinking and gambling along the way. But it was always my decision to move forward and eventually I lost it all. And I was arrested in the March of 2016 and served time in a federal prison. And now I'm piecing my life back together. Thank you, Andrew, for being yet vulnerable enough to share such a personal story. Um, and you can feel the energy with both of us sort of witnessing you talk about it in such a candid way. I guess my question is, and I'm sure just based on the way you describe your childhood, was there a moment in time in your journey that you knew you were headed down a path that may, you know, maybe not wind up in the place that you became, you know, in federal prison, but that you knew you were kind of making choices that weren't helpful and that you were headed down a bad path. Absolutely. And um, I would describe it as, as hundreds, probably moments of clarity. Um, on a regular basis, I knew what I was doing was wrong. I knew it was against, you know, everything that I've been taught by my parents. Uh, in my family, and yet I still did it. I would say the moments got clearer and clearer over time as the steps I took were bolder and bolder. Um, and certainly that first crossing of the criminal line, I, I, I couldn't believe I was doing it, but still I was doing it. Um, mm -hmm. And I would say the clearest moment was probably at the end um, when I actually had a chance to get out. Um, President's weekend, 2016, for 
whatever reason, I had just had an enormous string of good fortune and had made something like 20 times my money over just a few weeks. And so I was sitting in front of my computer that weekend looking at kind of a spreadsheet and I just couldn't believe what I saw. And it showed that because of the bet I had closed out that Friday, I was sitting on more than a hundred million dollars in cash and I could repay my investors twice over, still have enough to cover my lifetime of losses. And I was thinking, I, I can't believe this. Like I never truly believed I would be able to, to get here and yet here I am. And I said, I got to stop. I just have to stop. You know, if you think about that old game show, it's like door number one and door number two, you know, I, for years I had bankrupted myself over and over again, as long as I continued. So I had a feeling that if I continued, you know, I would not only bankrupt myself, but more importantly, bankrupt the people that I had taken this money from fraudulently. And these weren't just complete strangers. These were people that I loved and knew. And that would be an emotional pain. It'd be a financial pain. It would be all sorts of pain for them. And then obviously for me personally, there are lots of reasons not to continue. I knew what I was doing was criminal. I knew I would go to prison. I knew it would probably destroy, you know, the, the, the family life that I had that time. I knew that, you know, whatever reputation I had, it was gone, a career, you know, all those things that we hold on to, you know, dearly in this life. I knew it was all going to be gone, you know, but still I chose the other, I, you know, I chose the wrong door and, um, you know, rather than just stopping and paying everyone back, I just, so at that point, you know, I kind of sort of told myself I would stop, you know, but then Tuesday morning after a long weekend rolled around and as 9.30 approached, I got a little more nervous, a little more nervous. And finally, right as the market opened, you know, I called my broker and I told him to place the entire cash balance on a single options bet. Within two weeks, all the money was gone. And uh, a few weeks after that, I tried to desperately raise some more money. You know, by raise, I mean defraud. And um, I was unsuccessful. And I was arrested Easter weekend, 2016. You know, I was carrying at the time a confession. So all, you know, I needed to do was basically give the government the password to my computer. It was all there. I threw myself at the mercy of the court. But that moment of clarity, you know, I, it wasn't clear. It could not have been clear to me. And so what I lacked was the courage and the discipline to act on it. And that was it. So you talk about it as courage. You talk about it as a decisions you continued to make. What your story speaks to me of is a hijacked brain. It, and, and when I talk about that, I'm really asking, is it possible in your understanding that your brain just simply wasn't working well and that is the definition of addiction? It's definitely possible. You know, I, gosh, I, I, I don't have your expertise to, to really answer that question. I just know what I experienced. And mm -hmm. let me just put it this way. The decisions I was making at that time in my life are very different than decisions making decisions I was making earlier in my life. And so something changed. Um, right. And, you know, I put myself in that situation. So it, it, it's possible that at that time in my life, you know, I was severely compromised. But it was a result of a lot of decisions earlier. 
And, you know, had I known the consequences of those earlier decisions, would I have avoided it? You know, maybe. Um, but I, but I know now there are lots of things I can do to avoid putting myself in that situation again. Now, because of the damage I did, I'm not likely to be put in a similar situation, but that doesn't mean I still can't destroy my life by itself. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, for me, if I could have spared my family, friends, clients, mm. colleagues, employer, everyone in my orbit that was so generous to me for so long, if I could have spared them all that pain, but still have personally gone through that experience and, and be where I am today, I would do it. But because of all that pain, it's something that I never want people to experience again. And that's the reason I'm on this podcast. It's a great statement. I mean, I think one of the things I always say when our clients come to us and they're desperate for help for somebody who has an addiction issue, whether it's a process compulsivity like gambling or a substance abuse issue, you know, we hear why my child, you know, are they ever going to be normal? All sorts of fears that family members have. And one thing I always say is that, you know, the assumptions are from family members that their loved one, because of this addiction, because what it's done to their brain, they're going to lead a lesser life. And that has not been the case of, the people I know who've gone through recovery, many of them are better humans than the average person who hasn't had to go and go through the steps. The steps are an enormously humbling process. I think they make people very self-aware of the damage they've done to others. So I think your sentiment is one that's shared amongst the community of people in recovery that you know, they wouldn't necessarily wish an outcome that was different for themselves, but for the collateral damage around them, family members, work colleagues, um, other extended parties that, you know, they would, they wouldn't want their addiction back, but for themselves, they often know themselves better and become, in my opinion, hum, you know, better humans through the process of recovery and healing. I guess one question I have is what, what role did faith have in this process? Were you somebody, were you a man of faith prior to these experiences? Has it kicked in during your process of recovery? So I guess I would describe my faith kind of prior to my rock bottom and still at times for sure as very hypocritical. So, you know, I expressed one thing with my words and my outwardly appearance, but I did other things that completely ran opposite to that. So when I say hypocrite, I mean like in the truest sense. Um, and hitting my rock bottom, it freed me, I think a little bit from, first of all, outward appearances, there was nothing that I could possibly project anymore. <laughs> there is there is something beautiful in being publicly humiliated. I will I will say that loud and clear. It it strips away so much pride that a personal humiliation may not expose. Um, so that was kind of step number one for me. It was it was sadly a necessary step, you know, but that was a gift to be publicly, you know, exposed. Um, and then it was a long process. So it's not like the day I was arrested. You know, I was making lots of great decisions and acting, you know, completely reformed. It, it's been a long, long process, but I've tried very mm -hmm. hard since then to kind of take at least the right steps forward. I would say for me, the most important, you know, aids on that path have been mercy that's brought into my life, completely unmerited grace and mercy. So when I was arrested, you know, I talked before about the prodigal son. I, I, I had the same mindset that I, that I thought that there was no possible way that I could ever be forgiven for what I had done. 
you know, and looking back on it, that's a very prideful mindset that my, my, you know, my sins were greater than God's love and mercy, you know, but maybe some people can relate to that. You know, you don't have to commit crimes to feel like sometimes you're just in a spot that you, you just can't recover from and that your circumstances are just too great. And I realized eventually when people showed me their mercy that no, that my sins were horrible, but that love was even greater. So for me, the first like mm -hmm. steps towards that, when people, you know, checked me into a hospital, people I'd hurt, they checked me in, uh, you know, my wife, my family. Um, and then when I was in there, a priest came to visit me and, you know, rather than, I guess, kind of going through the litany of sins that, you know, that he disapproved of, he just asked me to, to confess and there was no conditions attached to it. So I took that opportunity. I just, I just put it all on the table. Um, everything that I could possibly remember from my whole life, especially the crimes. And I felt such a lightness after that. I felt like I finally had some hope. Um, and hope is a powerful thing. I will tell you when you are just starting recovery, like hope is water in the desert. So that was, that was like a very big first step. You know, while I was still in the hospital, I attended my first AA meeting. And then when I got out, I wasn't quite ready to get, you know, returned to home yet. So I stayed at a church for a couple months and it was a very, very restorative, mm. peaceful, prayerful environment to kind of reconnect. And I would say again, the theme of mercy and forgiveness. So I was sitting there in church knowing that I had been given all this unmerited forgiveness by others I had hurt, but yet I was still holding on to these resentments myself. And, you know, who was I? So I just decided at that moment just to let it all go, you know, all the way up to forgiving by name, the hijackers that, you know, killed my girlfriend on September 11th. And, you know, I just decided to let it go. And they're holding me back for too long. You know, that was just for me personally. I can't speak to other people's experiences with that. But um, personally, that was a life altering experience. And so, you know, to to re recall kind of the the skin tingling and lightness from that and moving forward, it was it was really transformative. And so I've tried to embrace that, you know, in my life. It's It's a continuing learning process. <laughs> But I think that's when, when my faith became less hypocritical and a little more action-oriented. So when you talk about faith being action-oriented, trust building is also action-oriented. Have you been successful yeah. in rebuilding trust with those people that you had, you know, not been trustworthy with before in your illness? Yeah, that would be an understatement. So, um, and, and I, I think it's too much for me to ask for, for that type of, you know, rebuilding a trust. Um, it was just, it was too big of a hole. Um, and so, um, financially and emotionally, the betrayal, you know, was, was enormous, you know, and I'll, I'll, I'll go back to faith a little bit. So, you know, for those of you Dante fans out there, you know, in the inferno that the, you know, the ninth circle of hell is reserved for those who betray the trust of others. And some of us feel like we're going through our own personal hells, you know, even before we're actually punished by society. That's how I felt. I felt like I put myself in a spot that was lower than low and that I couldn't get out of. And so, you know, now that I've been given this gift of kind of slowly climbing out of that circle, and, you know, working my way up, um, I'm not asking to restore the trust of the people I betrayed, but instead, you know, I'm just looking for new opportunities to 
to serve different types of clients. So obviously not in a financial or fiduciary capacity anymore. But uh, you know, I'll give you a few examples. So when I was in prison, I had a couple jobs. Uh, the first job was a janitor. And so, you know, I made sure that the toilets were scrubbed clean, the floors, you know, were mopped, tables, et cetera. And, you know, for someone who had, you know, had a somewhat successful career on Wall Street to go to making $5 and 25 cents a month, you know, scrubbing toilets, you know, that if I wanted to kind of say, well, you know, I shouldn't be doing this, that probably would have been tempting. But instead I tried to view it through the lens of service and client you know, action. And so my new clients were my fellow, you know, prisoners, inmates, residents, whatever you want to call, you know, us. And, and all of a sudden I had purpose because I was, I was serving people, you know, and that goes back to a lot of the foundations of whether it's religious faith or 12 step program, you know, the value of services is, is immense in providing, you know, a concrete way to get through your day. And then my second job, you know, was probably a little easier to find purpose was, was actually as a GED instructor. And that was, that was an amazing, amazing job, you know, probably my favorite, you know, job up to that date. Um, and, uh, helping, helping people who hadn't made it through high school all of a sudden get their diploma and, you know, working with six, you know, people to actually get that diploma. So they'd be better positioned to get a job. You know, when you look at the rate of recidivism coming out of prison, a lot of it depends upon was the person employed in the first three months or not. Because, you know, you, you can make every kind of noble decision you want, but when it comes to actually feeding your family and you're in a different situation than I am, a lot of people find themselves, you know, cutting corners again when they get out of prison. So if I could, if I could kind of help them through GED, you know, that was what a gift that was. I mean, that made my experience so much more purpose-driven and kind of prepared me actually to be a dad when I got out to, you know, start going through these... Uh, you know, these like kindergarten and first grade workbooks again. So that was a real gift. So that's a way to serve, you know, different kinds of clients and, and not ask, you know, for res restoration of trust, you know, on the people that I had betrayed, but mm -hmm. instead just to, to find new ways to serve. And then, you know, when I got out, all of a sudden I found out about recovery coaching and the recovery community. And so there's, there's just all different ways that you can help people. And it doesn't have to be addiction. You know, people struggle with all sorts of things. And sometimes it's just, you wanna, you wanna listen. I don't have to tell my story, I could just listen. How do you stay active in the recovery community now? Well, it's, it's, it's evolved. So I guess I'll kind of go back in time and take it to the present day. So, you know, when I started, uh, I was very heavily involved in Alcoholics Anonymous and Gamers Anonymous. Um, and as I went into prison, you know, those programs were less available. But some of us kind of, you know, bootstrapped our own program of, of recovery. Um, you know, within Lewisburg. And then when I was admitted to a, uh, a drug and alcohol program, um, that was like a, like a 24 hour, um, uh, program where we were eating and sleeping and studying recovery and helping each other. And that was, that was pretty cool. You know, I mean, it's one thing to kind of attend a 12 step meeting and, you know, the Upper East Side, for instance, another thing to, 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 you know, to share your story with someone who, who, who comes from a very, very different background and who wasn't given the opportunities I was given and, you know, who has had different drugs of choice. Um, and so I learned probably more, you know, in my time in prison 
um, than I have at any other time in my life. It was, it was a real education. Um, and just the kind of the human experience when you're living with 150 people in one large room, kind of bunk to bunk to bunk, you know, you can't just live on an Island. <laughs> uh, you can't, you can't shut your door at night and just say, you know, I want to, I want to, I want to kind of spend some time with myself. You have to immerse yourself, you know, in other people's lives and experiences and you have to share your own. And so that was my recovery, you know, and then when I got out, I kind of slowly reentered, you know, more traditional forms of recovery and, you know, started learning about recovery coaching and have tried to find new ways to, you know, improve lifestyles, you know, and so learning about, you know, nutrition, for instance, or, you know, myself, I mentioned before, I've, I've, I've been the benefit beneficiary of mercy and that probably more, more from my, you know, wife and media family than anyone else. And, you know, while our marriage didn't, survive, you know, what I put her through, you know, we now have an amazing co-parenting relationship. And so, you know, I've tried to kind of immerse myself in that recovery world. So learning from people who have been, you know, through, you know, family disruptions or divorces and those type of groups and being both a source of support as well as, you know, a recipient of support. And so it's, it's really an evolving, but very interactive uh, process. What an amazing, amazing half an hour we've just spent. What I want to know lastly, though, is for our audience, what would be, if you were going to call down your experience, what would be the one thing you would want the audience to walk away with? I know what I'm walking away with. What would you like us to walk oh, away with? Well, I wouldn't presuppose, you know, kind of a lessons learned uh, summary, but I, I'll just say that, you know, a couple things. So maybe I'll evade your kind of one thing question. Mm -hmm. um, you know, first is that anything is possible. So both kind of going down as well as, you know, when the sun rises. So I would say going down when I turned away from, from kind of the love of my family and the grace of God that it was extended through my clients, my employer, my friends, you know, everyone around me. When I turned away from that grace, there was a lot, you know, that was possible. And boy, did I experience that, you know, darkness. Um, but then, you know, when I hit my rock bottom and I was no longer, I guess, trying to kind of, you know, hold up this artifice while, you know, feeding the black hole of gambling, which by the way, is all consuming. And the more you feed it, the more it wants. And first it consumes you and then it starts bringing in the people around you. So, you know, when I was able to start turning away from the back black hole and stop feeding it, and I was able to turn a little bit towards God's grace, um, you know, anything seemed possible coming out of it. It was, it was really glorious and miraculous. I never would have thought that, you know? So that's kind of my, my, my general, you know, uh, airy, um, you know, takeaway from the experience is, is, is never assume that things can't get worse if someone is struggling, um, if, if, if they're not adequately addressing their, their situation, but also never think, assume that things can't get better if, if for whatever reason they're given kind of a, a renewed purpose. So that's that's kind of the the 30,000. I would say on a more you know granular level, I've I've learned the importance of a holistic approach to recovery. So what does that mean? You know, I mentioned faith, obviously that's important, but there there's a lot of pillars. You know, I carry around this card with me. Mm -hmm. 
I'll embarrass my kids here. So, uh, you know, in case I ever get in a jam, I can always look at this card and know, you know, what I need to look forward to to get through the day. And this is important because sometimes, you know, you can be the world's best navigator, but if there are clouds on the horizon, you may not be able to see the stars or the moon or whatever gets you, you know, from port to port. And when the storm comes and you can't see anything, you need something tangible. You can't look to the heavens any longer. So I got these steps in the back, you know, and they tell me, have you done these things today? You know, have you, have you helped a stranger? Have you prayed the rosary? Have you exercised? Have you counted your blessings? Have you prayed for a victim? Have you prayed for a perpetrator? Have you thanked a friend? And then there's the emergency checklist, you know, like break this glass, you know, have you confessed? Have you gone to a meeting, you know, talked to a sponsor, reached out to your safety net, you know, support, um, you know, and on and on and on. And then I have a reminder on here, you know, that, you know, so one of my favorite saints is St. Faustina. And she said that suffering is the greatest treasure on earth. It purifies the soul. And if you're struggling, you know, whether it's an addiction or just life in general, often it's the resistance to suffering that makes things worse. And man, was that my life for so long. And it's, it's only kind of now trying to embrace the suffering, um, you know, kind of just jumping into the wave to use that old, you know, a truism um, that it adds purpose to a difficult time and it keeps you from doing something really stupid. You know, and so when you talk about kind of the hijacking the brain, well, let's get that back on the tracks. And this card helps me keep it on the tracks. This is great. I think it's a great note to end on. And I love that it's a card that's laminated that you can have as a reminder. Because I do think in moments of desperation, we're often searching for something immediately around us to give us light. You know, people say meditate. And I always say, you know, if you're really upset, don't do that rather than have a drink. And I always say, you know, it takes the effort of actually turning over the phone and putting up. Yeah. For me, it's insight timer. So I think the more things we can do that can jerk us back into our sense of purpose and just give us a moment of pause before we do something we might regret or helpful. 100%. Any of them. <laughs> yes. Thank you Thank so you much. Thank you for joining us today for Beyond the Balance Sheet podcast and what is now a video option. Um, <laughs> if you have enjoyed this episode, please go to your platform of choice and like us and we look forward to seeing you and talking with you next time. Thank you for listening to Beyond the Balance Sheet, a podcast designed to help advisors, clinical professionals, and affluent families solve some of their biggest medical, psychiatric, and emotional challenges. Visit beyondthebalancesheet.com to read more about our guests and resources and sign up for our newsletter.